Uh, you guys can grab a Bible and open to Acts 15 this morning. It's uh, 922 in the Pew Bibles. We can officially say Pew Bibles. That's kind of weird. So this morning, um, after a little Lent hiatus, we're going to be diving back into Acts. Um, Todd and I were talking this morning. He's like, you know, I realize it's been since February that we've been in Acts. And so I'm going to give a, a little bit of a uh, recap, a very brief recap of Acts. I was going to walk through chapters 1 through 14 this morning and then also hit this, but I thought that might be a little long. Um, so we're, I'm going to focus on, on the end of Acts 14 uh, that we last heard from when Paul and Barnabas had been traveling to many different areas uh, and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. They met with some mixed reactions, to say the least, uh, Many places came up against them, oftentimes with heavy resistance. In fact, if you'll remember in Lystra, uh, Paul was stoned there, and um, they thought he was dead. They drug his body out of the city. They basically left him for dead. When the disciples gathered around him, he stood back up, kind of shook off the dirt, re-entered the city, spent the night there, and then the next morning with Barnabas left again for his travels. And I'm not not really sure that my reaction after being stoned by those people would be to go back into that city, uh, but it does give us a really cool testimony of what God was in Paul's life at that time. So we were seeing that, that Paul and Barnabas are pushing hard into new territory as they spread the gospel. And, and these are people who are hearing the gospel for the first time. And, and sometimes these are people who were never even really privileged enough to be told about this. They were teaching a radical gospel that states that what Christ did for us on the cross is enough. That there's no other requirement for salvation but to accept God's gift of grace. And so on that, we step into chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch after having fulfilled the work they were commended to do. They've essentially made a big sweeping circle from Antioch back to Antioch. And they spent some time with the church there and they shared gladly the stories of how God had worked through them in their travels. So you can open to 15, keep your finger there, because we're not going to quite get into it yet. Before we do, um, we just kind of need to look at something. The title of this message is When Unity is Wrong, which when I got that from Paul, I, I kind of stepped back for a second, kind of asking the question of, well, Christ calls us to be unified, to be a church that is unified behind him. So when can unity be wrong? And so as I've been praying and reading the scripture and reading through commentary written by guys who are way smarter than I am, I've come to a realization. It's, it's a weird one for me, but my realization has been that unity is not always what God desires. I say that, Specific unity is not always what God desires. Unity for the sake of unity, it's not worth it. It pushes the gospel to the side, and all of a sudden, unity becomes the centerpiece of why we're gathering. If I were to stand up here this morning and say, we've gathered this morning for the sake of unity, I would hope you'd kick me out of here. <laughs> because that is not true. That's not why we're gathered here. God doesn't want unity for the sake of unity. He requires unity around his gospel. Unity that honors God is unity that is built around Christ and Christ alone. 
it's not just because of what we do. It's not because we like each other. It's not to fight for some agenda point. Unity must be built around Christ. Otherwise, it's, it's something that looks a lot like unity, but it's not unity. With that in mind, we're going to read through Acts 15, 1 to 11. This is the Jerusalem Council. So again, this is after Paul and Barnabas have gone on their trips. They've excitedly been sharing how God has been working through them to get the gospel out to the Gentiles. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, before, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Clearly, as we read this account, the party of the Pharisees, also called the circumcision party, were not standing firm in the gospel of Christ. I would go as far as to argue that there's disunity here. This is not a picture of what unity in the church looks like. What the circumcision party is arguing for here is in addition to the truth. They're saying that what Christ has done is not enough. But we also have to add these other requirements, in this case circumcision, and to abide by the law of Moses. They've effectively flipped the equation. Their equation would state that we need the law of Moses, that we need circumcision to complete what Christ has done. The actual equation is that Christ came to make the law complete. They've got it backwards. The circumcision party is stuck in a rut of seeing only what they wanted to see. And now, they don't disagree with salvation through grace. They just felt that it was a matter of salvation through grace plus. This is a big issue for the early church. And this morning, we're going to walk through this verse by verse to see how the Jerusalem Council dealt with this. So in verse 1, <coughs> excuse me, we see the church in Antioch at this time, was a picture of what a church should be. 
At this point, they had Paul among them. They had several ministers who were faithfully spreading the gospel, and they were great ministers. They were people that you wanted to hear from, people that were not just saying nice things, but they were living lives that reflected what they were teaching. The life of the church was one of celebration. But that life of the church wouldn't stand unattacked for very long. The gospel was being spread, truth was being taught, and God's people were being strengthened. And so the enemy wouldn't be far behind with an attack. And so all of a sudden we see this false gospel starting to spread and take root. The circumcision party was in effect requiring all new converts to also fall under the requirements of the Jewish church. They agreed that you need Christ, but argued that baptism in Christ alone is not enough, that Jesus isn't enough for your salvation. The men who came down to Antioch teaching this false doctrine probably claimed that they were sent by the apostles in Jerusalem, which falsely gave this teaching credibility. And they were working not to further the kingdom of God, but rather to further an agenda. An agenda that said, unless you are just like us, you're never getting to heaven. In verse 2, we see Paul and Barnabas' Paul and Barnabas's reaction to that. And in that, you have to give them props. They heard this false teaching, and instead of letting it slide and saying, you know what, for the sake of unity, let them just kind of continue. It's good. Don't listen to them, but we don't want to create disunity here. They went against the false teachers. And this was no small disagreement. This was a full-out passionate argument. Chances are, one of the commentaries I read, chances are there was even yelling which kind of made me chuckle. But this was, they were passionate about this. This wasn't something that was just, hey, you need to stop doing this. This was a full-on conflict. And not only did they go against them, they wanted to be sure that they brought this argument to completion. That it wouldn't just be something that, hey, we had this argument, we disagreed, they disagreed, we walked away from it. No, they were going to go all the way up. They took it to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. They weren't willing to roll over on an issue just to appease the people that disagreed with them. Saying, you know what, you teach your gospel, I'll teach mine, it's all good. No, Paul and Barnabas knew the weight of this issue. They understood that this teaching was a massive mishandling of the gospel. And in boldness, they confronted it. I'm sure that caused division and probably even more arguing outside of that moment. But I appreciate the fact that for the sake of the gospel, these men were willing to do the hard work to guarantee that the one true gospel would be spread and take the proper steps to ensure that this issue would come to a resolution in a proper way. Verse 3, I love this verse. It's a really short summary of their travels to Jerusalem. Um, and, And in this summary it really demonstrates the strength of Paul and Barnabas. They had upon their shoulders the weight of this issue, the weight of resolving the mishandling of the gospel and making sure that that doesn't spread through the Gentiles who they had just worked so hard and tirelessly to spread the gospel to. And now that is being threatened, all that work. But along the way, they don't hesitate to stop and encourage other brothers with stories of how God had worked through them in the conversion of the Gentiles. In Phoenicia and Samaria, they brought great joy 
to all that heard what God had been doing through them. They didn't trudge along to Jerusalem kind of with an axe to grind. They recognized what God was doing in their lives and they couldn't help but share that. What an amazing example for us that even when carrying great loads and confronting false teaching, they were able to lay themselves aside and demonstrate the joy that comes with following Christ. Do we have that kind of joy here at Missio Day? The kind of joy that's not squelched because of conflict? The kind of joy that's contagious? The kind of joy that encourages brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we have the kind of joy seen here in Paul and Barnabas? I hope so. We move into chapters 4 and 5. They've been welcomed into Jerusalem with open arms. The church is excited to see them. They've given them the ability to share again their story of how God had been working in their travels. And it's amazing how Paul and Barnabas through this whole ordeal have managed to always give the glory to God for what he's done through them. It's never been, look at what I've done or look at what I've endured or look at how I managed to tweak this situation around for good. They didn't hesitate ever, not even once, to give the glory to God. The people gathered to hear their stories, I'm sure, were encouraged at their resolve for the word and strengthened at the works that God had done in them. His word was being spread to new places and people, and it was a joyous occasion. But immediately, men stood up and said that it is necessary that Gentiles are circumcised and ordered to live under the law of Moses. If I was in that church at that time, looking at Paul and Barnabas' faces, I could just imagine that they completely dropped. That there was just this huge amount of frustration and letdown. That they've just short shared these of how God is working and immediately a false gospel comes back up. So I'm sure they were let down by that but also with the realization of how far the circumcision party had entrenched itself into the church. So now the church has a tough road to take. The hard thing is that these men who are sharing this false gospel they're not intrinsically evil. In fact, they would be called brothers. They would sit next to you at church. They had accepted God's free gift of grace and they had done the work of the church alongside one another for maybe years. And the reality was that their faith in Christ had cost them dearly. Many of the members of the circumcision party were Pharisees, meaning before they came to Christ, they were the Jewish religious elite. They had gone through all the training. They had memorized the entire Old Testament. They had put on the robes of the rulers of, of Israel, and they were looked up upon by other Jews as the elite. They were the ones, the pinnacle, who you wanted to be. And oftentimes, when I come across people like this in the Bible that are teaching something completely contrary to the gospel, it's easy for me to look at their decisions and to look at what they say and say, what, what idiots? How could they even think that? 
And that's exactly what I did when I first read through this. How could they, how could they even think that Jesus isn't enough? But then you look at their upbringing, you look at their background, and I realize that these men would have been considered dead to those that they loved. Not just outcast or looked poorly upon. They were dead when they gave up their title as Pharisee and accepted Christ into their life. They lost everything they had. Power, status, possessions. All because Christ broke into their life and they responded to that call. So it's easy to see that their, their decision was difficult to accept Christ, to turn from what they had been trained for their entire lives and go a whole new way. And that it was difficult to break away from those long-held teachings and rituals that they knew. They were distinct in their faith as Jews, and now they wanted Gentiles to bear that same distinction that they had. But they lacked the understanding that Jesus didn't come for just the Jews. Jesus came for the whole world. So is the circumcision party against the other believers in the church. And if the circumcision party, who, again, intrinsically, these were not bad people per se, but had they been allowed to continue this train of thought, to continue preaching this gospel, they would have derailed many people's faith journey. In one commentary I read by a guy named Boise, Boise B-O-I-C-E, it was really good commentary, by the way. Thank you. What is it? Voice. Thank you. Awesome. Good commentary. Um, he had a line in there that really stood out to me. And it, it's, it stuck with me over the, the time that I've, I've been reading through it. He said, History and experience have proven that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes a means of salvation. I'm going to read that again. History and experience have proven that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes a means of salvation. If this false teaching were allowed to continue, it would have, over time, taken out salvation by grace alone and replaced it with some other tainted human means of salvation. And the apostles knew it. And they knew that that was not acceptable. Now, on the table, there were theological issues, obviously, but there were also relational issues here. It's very important that the disciples made the right decision here because the truth of the gospel was at stake. But I'm sure that there were some relationships at stake as well. What I see in the next several verses are men who built a base for us to infuse grace into our theology and also into our relationships. We must withstand false doctrines today. We must withstand false doctrines today and teach the truth of the gospel. But we have to do that in a way that shows grace to others in all that we do, even to those that disagree. It is not our way or their way. What we have to understand is that we are under a new covenant. We are under a new covenant with Christ, with a loving and just God. It's not our job to win an argument. 
rather to share our story of what God has done in our lives. We must stand firm for the sake of the gospel in a way that shows love even to those who disagree with us. Verses 7 to 11. Uh, This is Peter's time to be so antsy he can't sit still anymore. The debate is in full swing. It's been going on for a long time. And people have been talking much more than they have been listening, I'm guessing. Just because in my experience, when people are arguing today, they tend to talk more than they listen. And that hasn't really changed, so I don't imagine it was too much different then. People have probably said some things at this point that they wish they had not said. And it's gone on for a long time. Peter, though, who I love because he just can't help but jump in feet first, like he does with everything. (laughs) He stands up at this point probably because he's just so antsy he couldn't even hold it in any longer. He was going to burst if he didn't get up and say something. He gets up and recounts what God has done in his life. He points back about 10 years to the Cornelius incident. If you remember, that's when he's called into Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, and there he preaches the gospel and Boom, Cornelius' whole family is converted on the spot, just like that. And in verse 7, I want you to notice Peter's language. He doesn't attribute anything that he had done to himself. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. By my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It's kind of funny hearing that from Peter because earlier, if you remember, Paul had to rebuke Peter because he was eating with Gentiles and nothing was a a problem until the Pharisees showed up. And then all of a sudden, Peter kind of pulled back from that and acted like, oh, yeah, we can't really commingle with them because they're different than us. But here he very clearly stands up and says, God has made a choice. Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. But again, he he doesn't attribute it to himself. He humbly attributes it all to God. It was God's choice, gospel, and victory. And Peter was able to be a part of it because God made that happen. Peter continues that it is God alone who knows the heart, God alone who bore witness to them, and God alone who gave them the Holy Spirit. Peter's point here was to drive home the fact that it is God who is in control and not us. God had accepted the Gentiles only when he gave them the Holy Spirit. We don't get to choose who gets to get saved and who doesn't. In fact, we, we can't save ourselves or anyone around us for that matter. We don't possess that power. Peter's conclusion is that God has the power. And he doesn't make any distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And right now, all of us in this room should be very grateful for that decision. <laughs> Peter now turns his attention to the opposition And he asked them why they would want to saddle the others with a yoke that they themselves haven't been able to carry. 
Through following the law, they weren't able to attain salvation. Nor were their fathers. They recognize that the law has a purpose, but it's not the purpose that the circumcision party had in mind. You see, they think that the law would make complete the conversion of the Gentiles. That yeah, they have Christ and that's good and they're hearing scripture and that's cool and they're living lives that look different and that's great, but they're not circumcised. They're not complete because they have not lived into the law. Again, they missed the point that Jesus came to fulfill that law. The purpose of the law is to point people to Christ. It always has been. The author and perfecter of our faith. Peter is driving the point home that it is by grace alone that we are saved. If I haven't said that about a hundred times by the end of this morning, then I need to continue going. It is by grace alone that we are saved. For us today, that means from the highest educated person or highest paid person in the room to the youngest child, it doesn't matter. We all come into the presence of God the same way. Through grace alone. We have a loving God who has made the ultimate sacrifice for us so that we may accept his free grace and become worshipers of him. It is because of our loving God that we have grace and faith which levels us all out. It makes it possible for us to have fellowship with one another. To say, may the peace of Christ be with you. It is because he has first entered into our life. But we also have to be like Peter, Paul, and Barnabas here who stand firm for the gospel when it's challenged, knowing that the dilution of the gospel leads to death. So what does that mean for us today, tomorrow, next week, next month? I have a couple of things. First, it means that as followers of Christ, we must be cautious not to let our upbringing influence the gospel as the circumcision party did. We have to be sure that we're not adding to salvation works that further weigh down other believers. The gospel is a gift. And we can't attach strings to that gift thinking that we know better than God. Second, it means that we have to stand against those who are against the gospel, even if they claim Christ. And I tread kind of carefully on this one because it, it could come off as we need to create some kind of unhealthy holy huddle that's just going to stay together and only accept those that are in full agreement with us on every single issue all the time and we all need to look the same and be the same. That's not what I'm saying. I want to be clear that that's not what I'm saying. When I say we have to stand against it, I mean that we need to know what God says. We need to know the word of life so that when it's incorrectly represented, when it's misrepresented, or when it's blatantly ignored, we can identify that, we can correct that, and we can point them back to Christ using Christ's own words. Not just, I think, or you should. Those statements are weak. Power comes from God's word. 
Sometimes that means gathering the elders together and having a meeting, such was the case in Jerusalem that we just read. Sometimes that means, hey, pulling them aside and saying, you know what you just said there is not correct. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Christ has taught us to do. And if we are to live our lives as Christ has, what you just said contradicts that. So sometimes it's that personal sidebar. Sometimes it's gathering people together and having a throwdown. But in any case, we must be able to defend the gospel. And that requires us to know the gospel, not just pay lip service to God. Much like the issue of circumcision was for Paul, as I've prepared for this, my mind says, what is the issue for us today? What is it that threatens the gospel in our day and age? You don't need to say anything. Just think about it for a minute. Because this honestly consumed a better chunk of hours of my time in preparation for this. What is it that threatens the gospel in our day and age? As I thought through it and prayed about this very topic, as I was preparing for this message, I don't have a definitive answer. I don't have something like Paul and Barnabas where I can come to the council and say, hey, these guys are saying this. We need to address it. But I have a hunch. And it's not one that I've come to on my own. In fact, it's not even one that I really love talking about. But it's the idea of postmodernism that keeps coming to the surface for me. Postmodernism basically says that there is no truth with a capital T. That there are many truths with lowercase t's. And that truth is pretty much subjective. There's no eternal truth. There's no one truth. We live in an age where what's good for you is really good and I'm happy for you, but that's not for me. In fact, I I don't even want to look at what you do because I'm me and I'm not you. Today we have isolated ourselves almost to the point of depression and oftentimes we do it without even knowing it. How many times have you walked into a restaurant and seen a couple, a guy and a girl sitting at a table, both on their phones, physically in the same spot but mentally miles apart? It's typically, typically, more important to know what's going on in the world of Facebook than in the world in front of our face. We've ceased to live lives that glorify God and starting, started to seek lives that glorify ourselves. The idea of postmodernism supports that fully. Because you should really just make sure that you're doing what makes you happy all the time. You don't want to be sad. You don't want to do anything that's hard so long as it's small t true for you. And you know what? For some people, that may even include sitting in church. But then I have to wonder, does that make why you're sitting here the right reason? And then, you know, just like a knife going in my heart, it it was a point of conviction for me. Because in my life, I realized that I have sections of people. I have some sections of people, many of you are in this section, that I have no problem proclaiming what God has done in my life. In fact, I get excited about it. Michael asked me right before this, so do you get nervous when you preach? And yeah, my hands shake. Like, I get really nervous. 
But I don't know if it's always nervousness of like, ooh, are they going to like me? It's more so, am I going to be true to what the gospel says? And then there's also kind of like Peter, that certain point of, I just kind of can't hold it in. Like, I just can't wait to tell you what God has been telling me in my preparations for this, this message. So there are those people that I love to tell about God. And then there's the other people in my life that know that I'm a Christian, but I don't really necessarily tend to push it any further than that. Like, yeah, I love Jesus. That's cool. So what'd you have for dinner last night? You know, it's, I just don't do it. And the reason for this conviction in this verse to me is that <clears throat> what the apostles did here put the gospel above their personal relationships with the people who were in direct opposition to it. These could have been their friends. These could have been people that they shared meals with. These were probably people that they knew, if not by name, at least by some face, they had recognition. <clears throat> the apostles knew the weight of the gospel, though, and the importance of keeping it pure. And they understood that there was more, in, that was more important than friendships. As I read and reread Peter's statement, <clears throat> it struck me how he clarifies what God has done in his life and asks why, his, why the opposition, his opposition, would want to further burden new believers in a way that doesn't make a personal attack on them, but clarifies God's word and states truth. He has no desire to destroy these people or to win an argument. He has every desire to be sure that the gospel is upheld and truth is taught. He's not looking to make himself look good at the cost of these people. Rather, he's pointing back to the cross and the free gift of God's own son and the work he did for us on the cross. And I stand here today proclaiming that there is truth with a capital T. I have no doubt about that. And that God is the God of eternity who loves us so much as sinners, as his enemy, he sent his son to die for us. And in the light of that free gift, we can't help but respond and then go out and fulfill the Great Commission. And I'm just going to read that to you because it's a good one. Jesus said to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of an age to the end of the age. What an awesome promise is that he ends that commission on. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We aren't the ones who decide who goes to heaven or hell. But we have been commissioned as followers of Christ to continue his work on earth. Why, I don't know. I think Jesus was probably doing a much better job than we have been but he has entrusted to us the work that he started. And we are called to faithfully share that work, to share the gospel, to share our story of what God has done in our lives with all people that we encounter. And I want to invite this church into that, to live lives that are fully sold out to Jesus, not just when it's convenient or easy or feels good, 
We also have to have the understanding that we are not Jesus, though. We live under grace that has been extended to us and that we also have to extend to those around us. The church must be unified and that unity must be around the gospel and the power that comes with knowing Christ. If we attempt to add to the gospel, we are impairing our witness to the very people that we are called to reach. And I want to end us on that. I want to end us chewing on the reality that we are called to be Christ's hands and feet. We are called to go out of these doors and into this area where we have been placed and preach his gospel, especially when it's not easy. And we are called to confront those who are preaching false gospels, even if they sound really nice or even if they sound really easy or even if they're not really affecting our life. We are still called to stand against false doctrine and to teach truth everywhere we go. And I pray that as the church of Missio Dei, that we do that. That we don't show up to a Sunday morning just to hear a nice message, to sing some songs together, to see some people we haven't seen for six days. But that we understand that this building that we call our missional outpost is meant to refuel you, to fill you up so that your cup may overflow so that as you go out from here, your cup will overflow. That you're not here for some selfish self-help want to feel good about myself because that's not what it is. You're called to go out and be bold for Christ. And if we're not doing that, we're not being the church. So again, I invite you this week to be the church. To live lives that are fully sold out to Christ. Please join me in prayer.